From the University of Bristol, you are listening to Research Frontiers. Hello, and welcome to Research Frontiers, a podcast series from the University of Bristol. I'm your host, Ruby Lotlavinia, and throughout this series, I'll be joined by a collection of Bristol's thought leaders, taking a deep dive into the research at the university, which is changing the world and enriching the education of students who study here. Our contributors will include some of the university's most inspiring minds and the students who learn from them. Throughout these conversations, we'll uncover the transformative power of research, both on our society and in solving global challenges, as well as in the future education of students. In this episode, our attention will be focused on the world of work, specifically the rights and laws contained within. And when it comes to labour, employment and work law, you'd be hard pressed to find a better versed expert than Professor Alan Bob. Also joining on this episode is current student, Stuart Hurst. So Alan, we'd like to begin by just asking a bit about your areas of research and projects you've been involved in. We'll get into some of the specifics shortly, but could you give us an overview of some of your research? So I've examined labour law in its entirety, and it's a big subject. So over the years, uh, I've looked at trade union rights, uh, freedom of association, collective bargaining, the right to strike. Currently, my research has been focused on employment status. So that's the question when somebody qualifies as an employee or worker and qualifies for statutory rights. And that's been particularly important in the gig economy. So recently, there have been really important cases in Uber uh, and in Deliveroo. And I've been involved in those debates uh, and the question as to whether or not somebody qualifies in law as an employee. So that's a the kind of first area that I've looked at. Uh, and the second area has been the question of remedies for enforcement. So what happens when an employer violates your statutory rights? What remedies are available to you? Uh, and are the remedies currently provided in the law effective in terms of supporting enforcement? That's really interesting. And, and Stuart, let's bring you in here. Uh, what brought you to this course? And has this kind of subject area always been your passion? I think, like you mentioned before, you'd be hard pressed to find, you know, academics in labour law in this specific concentration. You know, there's a lot of institutions that offer employment law, but Bristol kind of takes it one step further and offers a specific pathway in employment law, which is the Employment Work and Equality, LLM. You know, you read some journal articles, you, most of them will cite one of the academics from Bristol. So either Alan or Tonya or Philippa, they'll be cited pretty much everywhere. So it's kind of the place to be for employment law, pretty much. So that's why I'm here. Okay. And Alan, people might be familiar with your involvement in the P&O Ferries Fire and Rehire case which was featured prominently in the news in early 2022. If possible, would you be able to kind of summarise what happened there and how you came to be involved? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think my first contact with it was probably like everybody else's. So I'm always on my phone, uh, despite the fact that I can barely use it. But um, I think I clicked onto the Guardian app and there was a breaking news story about P&O having dismissed 800 seafarers without notice. And actually, my first reaction was I'd be surprised if that was the full story. That's so flagrant 
a thing to do. There must be some context, maybe something's been missed. Uh, and then over the next 12 hours, it became clear that Piano had in fact done exactly what was being reported uh, in the breaking news story. Now, actually, there's nothing legally complicated about what happened in terms of the substantive law. It was a clear breach of multiple legal provisions. The most fundamental one, I think, in that context was the failure to consult with the trade union that represented the workers. Uh, and in fact, P&O didn't argue uh, that what it had done was lawful, but what it did was it, it made a, a settlement offer to each of the affected workers. And I think the aim of that was really just to kind of buy off any kind of legal challenge in the courts. So that really fitted with my academic work because I'd just been focused on the question of remedies and enforcement. And what happened in P&O exposed it very clearly that there was a gap in the legal framework. Uh, and then within a couple of days, the select committee in Parliament got in touch and asked if I'd be prepared to appear 24 hours later uh, to talk about the case. And how did that go? It was a really interesting process, nerve-wracking, because I wrote and said, yes, of course. And, and then you begin to realise, as is always the case with any legal issue, it's more complicated than what you thought. So uh, I started to look at the particular contracts of the seafarers. Uh, the fact that they weren't, in fact, employed in the United Kingdom, uh, that they were employed offshore, that some of the work took place in the territorial waters of the UK, but some of the work took place outside of the territorial waters. Uh, and then you begin to realise, actually, this is in some ways, rather complicated. In the end, all of those complications didn't affect the basic point, which was, as the chief operating officer admitted himself in the select committee, we broke the law, we knew we were breaking the law, but what we did is we offered a financial settlement to buy off the legal challenge. Um, and what has kind of been the fallout from the case, to your knowledge? Do you know if the situation has resulted in any kind of positive changes yet? Or is it still very early days? I think it's still early days. My suggestions to the committee for broader reform of enforcement and remedies, I think at the current time, don't look like they will go forward, which is disappointing, I think, because I think what P&O did do is it exposed some really significant gaps. To give an example, the protective award for breach of consultation has a cap. Now, uh, that's designed to make business decisions and business planning calculable for employers, which is probably a good thing. But it can be abused when an employer calculates the cost of breaching the law and then makes a decision that the likely profits of breaching the law will exceed the costs in the tribunal. So you've mentioned that one issue as something that can kind of be learned after the P&O case. Are there any other areas or lessons that you think we can learn? Could you see any other areas of employment where something similar might be on the horizon? 
or are these situations just quite impossible to predict? Uh, well, it's interesting that at the outset you described P&O as a fire and rehire case. And I think technically we've got to be quite careful about that description because, in fact, what happened in P&O was rather different. So all of the unionised seafarers were dismissed and then an entirely new workforce was appointed through agencies that operated outside of the United Kingdom and therefore were not subject to the national minimum wage requirements. So in fact, P&O was, was just a, a, a situation of firing. A new workforce was hired that was much cheaper and it was also not a unionised workforce. But I think I understand why people describe uh, P&O as, as like fire and rehire because it is. What it involves is the reduction of terms and conditions in current contracts and the issuing of new contracts that reduce protections and reduce wage levels. And I think what you will see over the next year is a continued use of fire and rehire across the UK. Uh, so I think that does require legislative attention. And I, I would be hopeful that there's a cross-party consensus that fire and rehire needs restricting and regulating much more tightly than it is currently. So that, I think, could be a potential area that you could build political consensus around. Do you think there's genuine political interest in making those legislative changes? Because it seems to me that this is an issue that continues to arise. And I mean, the P&O Ferries is a great example of, a, as you kind of said at the beginning, such a stark situation that you kind of couldn't believe that it, that had actually happened. And yet there haven't kind of been the changes you've called for. Do you think, yeah, there is the sort of desire or pressure in government to do that? Um, that's a really good question, Ruby. So I think the danger always was with P&O that it becomes about P&O. Uh, and one of the things I tried to emphasise in the select committee, and I'm not sure how persuasively I did this, was that actually um, it isn't really about P&O, although um, it's quite nice. It scratches a political itch to vilify certain individuals uh, and certain companies. But focusing on culpable individuals obscures attention to the wider structural context that allowed that to happen. And the fact that we have very weak enforcement and weak remedies in the United Kingdom. So is there the political will? I think there was genuine political anger across the political spectrum about what had happened. But only weeks later, the government pulled the employment bill from the Queen's speech. And the employment bill has been promised now uh, for years. So uh, I'm not optimistic uh, that in this parliament we'll see the statutory changes necessary to respond to that problem. But I do think that another year of fire and rehire and other abuses being exposed, there will be electoral pressure for action. And when there is electoral pressure for action, then governments in the end have to act. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And has the case kind of affected your own life at all, your own work? Like, how are you sort of feeling now a few months down the road from it? Well, obviously, it was very sad 
to to read what what had happened and it always feels very personal to me in terms of how I came into labor law you know I I was brought up in the northwest in the 1980s you know I I was from a single parent family my mum cleaned and then engaged in social care for people with uh, mental disabilities in the community. So we lived in difficult economic circumstances. So whenever I see things like this, um, it brings it home to me, obviously how lucky I am now in terms of what I do, but also how much there is left to do uh, to make sure that uh, people don't live with the spectre of uncertainty in their lives. Because I think that was the terrible thing about P&O, not simply the loss of employment, but the loss of employment in circumstances where these people were treated as entirely dispensable and didn't even have the courtesy of some notice to make planning decisions for their own lives. Stuart, can you talk to us a bit about your work? What have your studies involved in recent times? Uh, So recently we've just finished um, the taught component of the master's. So a lot of it is now researching, preparing for the dissertation period. So I've been looking at the changing scope of trade union power and how people are looking towards trade unions. There's a push for more environmentally friendly practices, which might affect workers' rights. Uh, So we're kind of looking at how trade unions, collective bargaining, industrial action can be used to like ensure that workers are protected when these rights are changing. It's a fascinating topic and I'm looking forward to looking into it more. And if you're familiar with Alan's work, what are your thoughts on his his research and projects? Have you found any particular resonance with the, the stuff he looks into? Absolutely, yeah. So like a lot of our seminars do have some of Alan's work on the seminar reading. So we've uh, done the illegality doctrine in migration and the, the role of the contract in, in ascertaining employment status. So there's a lot of Alan's work that we do come across in terms of studies and, you know, just separately as well. Um, and I think, you know, we don't always agree with what the academics say, but I think the whole point of academia is not to just take everything that you say as gospel, but to like use alternative arguments to build your own. The seminars have definitely been a good forum for discussion and like building our own knowledge mm-hmm. based on other people's work. Yeah. Right. And Alan, how has your experience of education been both as a student and an academic? Well, it's interesting. I, I was listening to, to Stuart talking about his own experience and, and that has always been very much my experience that what I've really appreciated about working in academia is meeting people who view the world differently, uh, meeting people who disagree with me on the law, talking to people about the disagreement, trying to understand what that's about, and using that as a kind of jumping off point for my own thinking. People who taught me were generous enough not to teach me what to think. They taught me how to think. And I see my responsibility as an educator today to be exactly that. And nothing gives me a greater thrill than reading an essay where a student tells me in a very eloquent way why what I've said is complete rubbish. Um, uh, I do love that aspect of academic life. And I hope that's something that I've carried into my own practices as an educator. And back to your kind of specific area of interest, 
do you feel a strong connection to the area of workers' rights in particular? And I, I guess, what is it about the subject that keeps you involved and keeps you inspired? I find it kind of endlessly fascinating intellectually. I'm not one of those people, and, and maybe this is a kind of measure of, of my own limitations as a thinker, who finds any of it easy. So every day that I open a book or I think about a new topic or I even think about a familiar topic, I always feel like I'm absolutely at the limit of what I'm comfortable with. It feels intellectually challenging. I find it difficult. I struggle to make sense of the cases. And that drives me on. And the day I find it easy is the day that I give it up and go and do something else. So I feel endlessly stretched intellectually. Now, that would be true of any legal discipline. You know, I could be doing contract. I could be doing company law. So I think it's the fact that all of this is occurring within a context where I feel in connection with my forefathers and foremothers. Uh, you know, my family, I can trace my family history back in the Northwest. They worked on the railways. Uh, they worked in the cotton mills. So I'm just at the moment writing a book on freedom of association and writing a chapter on the 19th century combination laws. All of that action took place in the cotton mills in Blackburn and Preston. And that feels very much alive to me. I think people would probably look quite sadly on the last maybe like 30 or 40 years of workers' rights and labour law and see how since the 80s, the disempowerment of unions has really affected workers and the expansion of the gig economy has really limited people's ability to kind of seek rights in the workplace, for example. Is that something that has been difficult to work with or is it something that has also aided your work and given you kind of more of a challenge and an intellectual challenge? I don't think despondency is a luxury that people in my privileged position can afford to indulge. There's no question that things have been difficult for trade unions, that the labour market is a much more hostile place than it was 40 years ago, and particularly for those people who are already vulnerable, like migrant workers who are working in the labour market. The one beacon of hope that I see is a shift in the attitude of the courts to labour rights. So for the last 40 years, it's been relatively difficult to get progressive legislation to deal with labour abuses. But one thing I think has changed in my lifetime as a labour lawyer is that the courts, I think, are much more willing to respond to these difficulties if you put a clever argument in front of them to consider. So I think in terms of how I would be regarded as a labour lawyer and what my kind of distinctive niche is in terms of scholarship, it's writing academic work that judges are um, inclined to engage with. And one of the great privileges of my work as a legal scholar 
has been when appellate courts cite my work in support of progressive legal change. So I don't think we should be entirely despondent, but I think we have to focus on the arenas for legal change that at the current time are more likely to be productive for workers. And I'm speaking to you as a professor at the University of Bristol, so I have a very easy question for you, which is why Bristol? Tell me about what brings you here, kind of all places and keeps you here. Well, the opportunity opened up at Bristol and over the last five years, we have seen a real build-up of expertise at the university. So we've established the Centre for Law at Work. We have a specialist LLM programme. And I would say we have the highest concentration of leading academic labour lawyers, uh, certainly in the UK and probably around the world. And what's wonderful about that group is there's a real diversity of approach. There's a diversity of political outlook. But in the face of that, I think we have some really productive engagements with each other and with the students. So that's what keeps me here. And it's been a wonderful five years at Bristol. And how about you, Stuart? Why is Bristol the place for you? I think pretty much the same as Alan's just said, the specialism. Uh, You're not going to find anywhere else in the UK that has this level of specialism. There's academics covering all the different components of labour law. So it's not just, you know, your individual rights. You've got, like Alan said, uh, Tonya Novitz doing migrant labour. You've got himself doing collective labour rights. Philippa Collins doing individual rights. You've got all this specialism and they all work together and all the courses that they do link together. So it's definitely kind of the place to be for labour law. And Alan, aside from qualifications, what would a prospective student achieve from studying a course such as a Master's in Employment, Work and Equality at Bristol? One thing I would say is looking at labour law as a whole, thinking about how the different parts connect with each other, having time and space to think about it as an intellectual thing, I think gives you something really, really valuable when you go into practice whether that's in an NGO or as a lawyer. Because when you've got case after case that you're preparing as an advocate, you're busy and sometimes it's really hard to step back and look at the bigger picture. And I think what the LLM would give anybody who is keen to go into the world of making work better is having that opportunity to think in an open-ended way and a deep way about the subject will make you much more incisive as somebody making change happen in the world. And just finally, how do you feel about the future of of workers' rights and employment law? Does your research ever make you feel negative about where we currently are or offer positivity by way of opening doors and solving problems? So I think there's no space really or time to be negative now. It doesn't help anybody. People in my position are in a privileged position and it's incumbent upon us to use our learning and our privilege to go away, think about the subject, think about how to make things better, whether that's through legislatures or whether that's through the courts. I think it's understanding the limits of what can be achieved. I think one of the lessons that I learned from P&O is that change for the better isn't an intellectual exercise often. I could tell a group of politicians what would make an ideal piece of legislation. That isn't necessarily going to happen in practice. 
but you can make change happen in small ways, incrementally, step by step. And I think over my time as an academic, whilst there have been very negative changes in the labour market, I can also point to incremental changes for the better in the case law and in small pieces of legislative change. So never give up. The world is there. It's waiting for you to make an imprint on it. That's very inspiring, I'm sure, to any students testing or future students. Uh, and Stuart, maybe we can just finish on your advice. Do you have any for students thinking of studying on this course? I think I've got two main pieces of advice. Uh, first of all, get a Twitter account. A lot of employment law academics are on Twitter. They post a lot of valuable stuff there. And then second of all, probably do the research into the courses, into the institutions. If it's something you want to do, go for it. You're not going to regret the things you did do. You're going to regret the things you didn't do. So like, make sure you do. Like Anne says, make change. Like, you can only make change by doing. So just do. Great. Alan and Stuart, thank you so much for your time and such an inspiring conversation. It's been fascinating to chat with you. So thank you for sharing your time and knowledge with us. Thanks, guys. That was great. Thank you for listening to Research Frontiers from Bristol University. We hope you found inspiration, information, answers, and more in all of these great conversations. Don't forget to check in over at www.bristol.ac.uk forward slash study forward slash postgraduate for more details on Bristol courses and information about Bristol University. Also, keep the podcast nearby. Subscribe to Research Frontiers wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And please do share with people who might benefit too. Thank you for listening to Research Frontiers. Research Frontiers.